yeah, we may have gone a little bit overboard at a blue moon sale today. <laughs> you go overboard on buying comics? I have never heard of such a thing. Hello, welcome to Tencent Takes, the podcast where we come from two different worlds but meet in the middle, one issue at a time. My name is Mike Thompson, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, the District Attorney of Death and Destruction, Jessica Frazier. Well, hello. Death and Destruction is my name. I am full of fury. (laughs) I know you're not actually a District Attorney. (laughs) I'm not. I'm not, though. You know what, though? I feel like that's for the best. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> probably probably for the best that I'm not part of law enforcement in any capacity either. Yes. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fantastic. How are you? I'm good. It's been so long since we hung out. Oh my God, it's been so long since I've seen yours or Sarah's face. <laughs> <laughs> the joke, everyone, being that we all hung out the previous night at a performance of our friend Jared and his jug band and Jared is actually the guy who did the music for our show. So it was a, it was a blast. The music you just heard. Yeah. And then noodle and Carl got to meet for the first time. Oh my God. And it was friendship at first sight. Yeah. Yeah. That was the sweetest thing. I was so happy. Carl's kind of a grumpy old man and puppies with a strong energy are sometimes not his favorite. And noodles like, chill enough like noodles noodles got a chill vibe puppy yeah yeah like the chillest puppy i've met iggy and carl get along for the most part iggy gets a little snappy sometimes but yeah (laughs) carl's pretty chill about it so yeah like our dogs get along but it's nice to actually see them hang out yeah my brother was worried about carl being with the live music but he did fine like he was chill yeah no i mean it was it was also it's a jug band performance it's not like we were taking him to like a thrash metal concert or anything. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, man. Anyway, the purpose of this podcast is to celebrate comic books in ways that are both fun and informative. We like to look at their coolest, weirdest, and silliest moments, as well as examine how they are woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. And if you are enjoying the show so far and want to help us grow, it's always a huge help if you rate and or review us on Apple Podcasts, because that really helps with discoverability. In fact, I think this episode may drop while we're still running our little giveaway contest, where if you leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening to and then send us a screenshot, you'll be entered to win one of two comic bundles, one of 90s gimmick trash covers and one of just really cool, fun, interesting dollar bin discovery finds that we've come across in the last year or so extra incentive mike has had so much fun curating these yeah he's been telling me all about the fun things he's been digging up and putting into the piles so i think you guys are really going to enjoy the array that he has come across and popped into those piles for us also it's free comic books so come on hello (laughs) (laughs) yeah so tonight We're going to be talking about Beauty and the Beast, which is based on the 1987 TV show. And there are actually two different comic books that we'll be discussing. But before that, what is one cool thing that you have read or watched lately? 
So I don't know if you've seen this yet, but I've been watching a show on Amazon Prime called Peripheral. I have not. I've heard about it. Like, I've seen a lot of buzz around it. Yeah. Well, it's from last year. It's starring Chloe Grace Moretz, Gary Carr, and Mm -hmm. Jack Rayner, and a bunch of other people. It's about a gamer played by Moretz, and she ends up getting looped into what is more than just a game. So she's warned that anything in the new VR that she feels is real and finds out that she's also causing real pain to others when she strikes as well. It's a really neat concept that interweaves the present and a near future world where technology can do just about anything. So I I would super recommend it if you haven't already oh, you said you haven't already seen it. So I'd super recommend yeah. it. I'm like five episodes in out of nine. Okay. So I just know that I'm going to want to see more when I reach the end though. But the good news is that I was doing a little research and there is a season two as well as a season three that seem to be in the works. So that's very exciting. Yeah, I haven't watched it, but I've seen a lot of people talking online about it. And I, I think I remember seeing a lot of really positive reviews for it. So that's cool. Yeah, it's really good. Well, what about you? Yeah, my adventures with Superman just dropped on Adult Swim and Max. We got the first two episodes this week. Oh. It's great. Like. The show is basically an updated take on Superman, and it's all about Clark Kent just starting out at the Daily Planet as an intern alongside his roommate, Jimmy Olsen. Lois Lane is a more senior intern, so she ends up taking the other two guys under her wing and then tries to get them to immediately eschew their duties of like making coffee for the office in lieu of Pulitzer-level investigative journalism. Lol. It's, it's actually very cute, and we get to see... Clark trying to balance his powers and his real life along with figuring out, you know, basically a superhero identity. But like all in all, he's still an awkward nerd and it's very charming. Like it's well written. The show stars Jack Quaid as Superman, Alice Lee as Lois Lane and Ishmael Sahid as Jimmy. And Jimmy, by the way, is a person of color this time around, which I really like. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. And Quaid himself is wonderful as Clark. And if his name sounds familiar, it's because he's Brad Boimler on Star Trek Lower Decks and he plays Huey on The Boys. I mean, you know, granted, like a little bit of a Nepo baby because he's Dennis Quaid and Meg Ryan's son. (laughs) That was what I thought you were going to lead with. (laughs) You're like, might sound familiar because. (laughs) Yeah. It's one of those things where I was originally, I remember like the first time I saw him, I think on The Boys. And I'm like, who is this guy? Like, he's just, he seems to have come out of nowhere. And I was like, oh, okay, I see how it is. And I'm like, don't get me wrong. Not every Nepo baby doesn't deserve their success. Like, and I think, I think Quaid is one of them. But at the same time, it's like, "Mm, okay, like you definitely had a leg up. You came from, (laughs) right. You you came from an echelon of Hollywood royalty. Right. (laughs) But yeah, the show is also done in that blend of Western animation and anime that Avatar The Last Airbender really kind of established as a legit style, Mm. and it works really nicely here. We watched the first episode the other night. The entire house loved it. Like, even my stepdaughter was into it. Like, and she normally isn't into superhero stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, that's super fun. But, yeah, they're basically dropping episodes on Adult Swim, and then the next day it's coming to Max. So, yeah, like, it's great. Check it out. Very cool. Yeah, I'll have to. All right. Are you ready to talk about Beauty and the Beast? Let's go. (laughs) 
We're like legit excited. We've been talking about oh my this God. one. I know. We actually talked about it last night and we don't normally talk about the episodes before we actually do them. But yeah, we just, I don't feel like we can help it. <laughs> yeah. Normally we kind of keep our mouth shut ahead of recording an episode. We'll occasionally kind of like mutter things to each other right. if it's like really bad or something right. like that. But this one was one where we wound up like chatting quite a bit. Yeah. Like about things we both liked and disliked. Like I think the last time that we wound up chatting this much about something was I think when we did the Highlander episodes. Oh yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, which kind of fits. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right up nostalgia alley. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so I so <laughs> I stumbled across this series a while ago and I was like, oh yeah, like I remember that show. Like I had it on the list of comics we should cover for the podcast. And then when you decided to talk about Marvel's Beauty and the Beast for last episode, I figured this would actually be kind of a great time to talk about this series. Yeah. Like it's kind of a weird moment of, you know, synchronicity. Absolutely. <laughs> so if you are not familiar with the TV show, gather around. We got to talk about some ancient <laughs> television. Like, a lot of our listeners, I don't think, are are as old as we are, so I need to lay a little groundwork. So in the late 70s and early 80s, fantasy was pretty popular as a, a genre, but fairy tale style fantasy was having like a big moment in movies and television. And it was just like it was, you know, fantasy in general, but like fairy tale fantasy had this like focused level of just popularity. And this was especially true in the first half of the decade. When we were getting movies like The Dark Crystal and Labyrinth and Legend. Yeah. And we also had TV shows like The Storyteller by Jim Henson. We had Shelley Duvall's Fairy Tale Theater. And we also had, do you remember Grimm's Fairy Tale Classics? It was like an anime series that I remember watching on Nickelodeon in the 90s. Yes. Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah. So that originally came out in the late 80s. And then, like, you know, it just kind of like was on constant repeat. But. As a result, it's not that surprising that in 1987, we got a romantic urban fantasy TV show called Beauty and the Beast. Honestly, I'm kind of surprised that we didn't have more programming like this looking at the context, you know, from today's lens. Yeah. The show was created by Ron Coslow. It starred Linda Hamilton as Catherine Chandler and Ron Perlman as Vincent, who is the Beast. And it also featured some of the earliest TV writing of George R.R. R. Martin. Like, yeah, yep. <laughs> Like, you specifically messaged me about that. It was pretty funny. I did, yeah. I took a screenshot of, like, his name because I just was like, this is intense right now. Yeah. <laughs> it, I had a vague awareness of this. Like, I remember reading this, you know, a decade ago or so that he had been involved with that show. Okay. But then it came flashing back to me <laughs> where in the second episode he has a cameo. Uh-huh. <laughs> where he is, like, this dude on the subway who's being menaced by some punk. And he, like... <laughs> gets off and just leaves this poor old woman to her fate of being like accosted by these by these criminals. I thought it was an interesting <laughs> was choice. But the other thing is I was like, that's George R. R. Martin. I'm like, he looks pretty much identical to how he does now. His beard is just whiter uh-huh. now. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was like, all right. Oh <laughs> uh, man. So Hamilton had finally achieved some pretty mainstream success a couple of years prior to this show. She had starred in the first Children of the Corn movie and then the original Terminator movie. And then 
after those back-to-back blockbusters, she had some guest roles on TV and then starred in King Kong Lives, which was, I guess, a sequel to King Kong, but it was also pretty reviled by critics. <laughs> and then she landed this role. So meanwhile, Perlman almost had given up on his acting career before he had snagged a supporting role in this historical mystery called The Name of the Rose. That movie wound up being an international box office success before that was really a thing. Like, it, it kind of bombed here in the States. Okay. You know, but that success led him to landing this role eventually. And his role as Vincent is actually widely credited as his mainstream breakthrough. Oh. Like, you know, and then he's just continued to kind of sail along as yeah. a regular part of pop culture. Like, he's gone on to be Hellboy. He's the narrator in the Fallout games. You know, he had a long-running stint as kind of the main villain on Sons of Anarchy. Like, you know, dude's had a legit career. Yeah, totally. Also, he was delightful as one of the villains in Blade 2, like, <laughs> which is one of my favorite movies. Oh, my goodness gracious. It would be. <laughs> yeah. So if you're not familiar with the show, the premise is that Catherine Chandler pretty much has it all. She works as a lawyer at her father's corporate law firm. She's got a nice Manhattan apartment. She's dating a client of her firm who is played with, like, maximum 80s business bro sleaze by ray wise oh my god it's so good (laughs) it's so fucking good it's so good (laughs) which i mean like if you're gonna have anyone who's playing kind of like a sleazy but like successful dude ray wise is always just a top choice for that 100 percent. chef's kiss no notes yeah (laughs) side note i love ray wise so much because he played the devil on a show called reaper that came out like back in the late aughts and i have never enjoyed a performance of the devil quite so much as him because he plays it with like this level of fun and it's just so good oh i love that i'll have to check it out that sounds familiar but i don't know that i've ever watched it yeah the whole idea is he basically ends up like getting a kid when he's 18 was sold by his parents like as a baby and it's a whole thing it's like backstory but basically he becomes a reaper for hell where he has to like capture escape souls oh and then okay Wait, maybe I have yeah. seen this. Wait a second. It was on the CW. Okay. That sounds like some trash I'd watch. Yeah. Oof. It was, uh, or maybe it was the WB back then. I can't remember which. Probably the WB. Like, the frog. It was one or the other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was right around that time when the transition happened. But anyway, <laughs> like he is so funny. And the whole thing is he's like, oh yeah. So like, you know, basically, you know, like once you get the escape soul, you just drop it off at a portal to hell. And he's like, well, where is that? And he's like, oh, so like the DMV, the local DMV. And he's like, any place that seems like hell oh on earth, God. it's hell on earth. Oh, my God. <laughs> he has some great line about, yeah, you know, like, you know, drop off a soul to hell, renew your license. I'm all about the perks. And I'm like, Jeez. this is really good. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, sorry for the tangent. So the big thing with Catherine is we see that she is extremely comfortable, but she doesn't really seem like content with how life has worked out. You know, all of that changes when she leaves a party, some random dudes abduct her off the street when they mistake her for someone else. They end up slashing up her face. It also feels that they were leading the audience to infer that Catherine is sexually assaulted as much as they could on network TV. Yeah, it did feel that way. But, But the thing is, is like that is never mentioned in any of the details we see later on about her crime. And it's one of those things where I'm like, if they did it now, it would obviously be like she was brutalized in every way you can think of because you know standards have changed right so after her assault she is dumped in central park a cloaked figure named vincent finds Catherine. he brings her into this like home underground where his father is able to treat her injuries and help her recover when she is 
strong enough to basically move around and return home to New York, we learn that Vincent is actually a lion man. That is the best way to describe him. Yes. He has the general body of a man, but he's got like kind of like developed facial features of a lion. He's got like a lion's mane of hair and he has claws on his hands. Yes. And, you know, fangs. Sexy renaissance lion man. Oh, yeah. Well, and that's the thing is everybody in this underground society dresses like they like they work at medieval times. (laughs) I mean, as someone who worked at the Renaissance Fair for a number of the years, I am fully on board with this style choice. Oh, I'm okay. Great. It's comfortable. It works in all kinds of environments. You get to wear billowing cloaks. It's we should start a movement, Mike. You and I should start like (laughs) a renaissance of the renaissance. Like we could just start this shit all over again. People already love being princesses online. Like why not like let it drift into like the real world? They can't stop us all is what I'm saying. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) Sarah would be on board. I'm sure Sarah Sarah would help us make costumes too. So on board. Yeah. Anyway, after this, Vincent takes her home to her apartment in New York. We learn that his father is the one who actually runs this underground society of outcasts. That also feels pretty utopian. It's referred to as the world below. Like, really, they just kind of like exist in steam tunnels, but they all seem pretty happy and like it's clean. Like, you know, they all just vibe underground and like do art and stuff. It's like pretty cool, actually. (laughs) Yeah. They don't have to deal with traffic because they know how to get through like all the tunnels and get everywhere. It's it's yeah. Yeah. It's a vibe. I like it. Messages through pipes. Cool as shit. Oh yeah. That's the whole thing where you like, you have the Morse code being tapped out on the pipes and that's like how they talk to each other, which I thought was a really nice little detail. Yeah. But yeah, Catherine returns to society. She receives plastic surgery to remove the scars that she has on her face, which are pretty gnarly when we first see them. But then, you know, it's never really a thing after that. And then she goes to work for the DA's office eight months later. It literally cuts to eight months later where she is interviewing at the DA's office. And she starts out as like an investigator doing assignments for them, but does work as an ADA eventually. She figures out that her attackers thought she was a woman named Carol Stabler. She talks to Carol, learns the men worked for a guy named Martin Belmont who ran an escort service and then blackmailed powerful clients. Belmont's men end up attacking her but Vincent saves her because it turns out he has some sort of empathic ability that has let him connect with her. So he feels her emotions and also when she's in pain, which is useful since he has to come to her rescue a lot. Right. It's never really implied how this empathic bond happened. No, I kind of, I I assumed when I was reading it that it was kind of like an imprint. (laughs) Like he imprinted on her kind of like Twilight or like, you know, whatever. There's there's lots of stuff that do kind of like that vibe of like, I connected with you on a soul level. Yeah, it's like kind of like, you know, hand waved away. It just, you know, it's a connection that exists between them after that. Okay, but like all of a sudden, Catherine would be in distress in one scene. It would cut to Vincent. Yeah. And he'd be doing whatever he was doing, usually talking to another person. And then he would just go. Yeah. Catherine and then like look away into the distance (laughs) super dramatically. And then he'd like get up and leave. And and then, like, immediately, I think he also had powers of, like, teleportation because she would be, like, all the way across town. I was like, how did she get And then all of a sudden he would, like, bust through a Uh, wall. Like, right or a window or, like, (laughs) he was always busting through something. (laughs) He Kool-Aid mans his way in. (laughs) 
Except this time the Kool-Aid is blood because he usually ends up murdering someone. Oh my God, or slashing them at least. Like they're at least very wounded. <laughs> mm-hmm. The really cinematic bright red blood. Oh God. Yeah. But yeah, after this, like, you know, Vincent rescues her in this first instance. They acknowledge they have feelings for one another. And this leads to the ongoing theme that they have this emotional romantic attraction in spite of their physical differences, which is sort of like a weird struggle for the first season. But by and large, most of the episodes are kind of a legal crime drama of the week, but with the meta plot focused on the developing romance between Catherine and Vincent. Right. The first episode ends with her. She like leaves New York for a hot minute and then she comes back and that's where they actually like acknowledge their romantic relationship and, you know, and things pick up after that. But that's, that's how the first two seasons go. It's a mix of fantasy and romance and crime drama. New York city is like at the time, kind of a perfect setting for the show because it was going through a lot of the time. The crack epidemic was in full swing. Crime was rising. There was a bunch of economic problems and ensuing cuts to public funding, which just kind of, exasperated everything yeah and as a result there was also like a lot of urban decay at this point in time so like if you don't believe me like google photos of new york in the 80s and it is just the most wild ride because it looks almost post-apocalyptic at times yeah it looks like something that you would have gotten out of like a dystopian post-apocalyptic urban movie certainly yes you know and so the idea of this utopian war on where everybody just gets to wear cool clothes and not worry about day-to-day problems existing just out of sight probably seemed like kind of a, a, I don't know if nostalgic is the right word, but like, you know, a wistful, if not plausible dream, I think. Yeah. And then what's also interesting is we get to see these moments where we would see New York on the streets as kind of this urban wasteland. And then it would also show us like, the glitz and the glamour of the wealthy part of society where they're having these like wild parties or nice apartments and penthouses. And then we would see the world below, which was underground. And I guess they were poor. Like they seemed like more socialist than anything else, but it's very utopian because no one really seemed to be struggling for the most part. (laughs) Yeah. I did find it funny how they, they would have like random, like giant cogs and gears, like in the background, it's just like window dressing. And you're you're like, all right. Yeah, I know. Right. I was actually like, as I was watching one of the episodes and they were down in like daddy's underground library, right? And I was Oh just... yeah, the library, which is like nicer than most actual bookstores. Right. Yeah. And so I was like looking at all the stuff that they had accumulated and I was just like, like, I wonder like logistically how they, I mean, I, I know how they got all this stuff, but like, it just like the, the, <laughs> the like the amount of stuff that was in there was just like. It feels like <laughs> it feels like this is well curated rather than like hodgepodge together. Yeah. yeah, it was it was serving some some Ariel's Grotto vibes. Oh, man. So good. <laughs> yeah. And actually, something that I found really interesting is that a lot of the villains in the show were actually like, you know, the wealthy, the equivalent of the one percenters at the time. Yes. Like, which I was kind of living for. I was like, oh, okay, I like this. This is solid, you know? Yeah. And I did like that they made it a point to be like, I don't like that you're messing with the little guy. And it's like, okay, all right. Well, and then they also called out Catherine as being like, look, like, because her, I think her friend is Edie, who works in the computer room in the DA's office. Yeah. Who is a woman of color. 
And she at one point is like, you're just dumping all your work on me because I'm looking up all this stuff. Yeah. And then she calls her out. She's like, I know how you like upper crust white girls work. You do this for a little while and then you like go on to your other thing. And then Catherine's like, well, no, like I'm here. Like this is my thing now. Yeah. And Edie looks up her file and then she sees that like, oh, Catherine actually suffered a pretty brutal assault. And this is like her way of like addressing trauma and other things. And yeah, it was much more aware than a lot of the media at the time. Yeah. Not perfect, as you and I have discussed off show about how, you know, she was like the sassy black friend. Yeah, it was very much a trope. Yeah. But at the same time, like she was working in a very skilled profession, like because, you know, like a computer technician in the 80s, like which was very high skilled. Yeah. Yeah. So were you familiar with the show before we started talking about it for this episode? Oh, I was incredibly familiar with this show. In fact, I was very excited that you brought it up because I used to watch the show like when they did reruns. I swear they must have done reruns of it in the 90s because I remember watching it. Oh, they totally did. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was born a year before it aired, so unless I was, like, super baby genius that just remembers everything, Mm -hmm. I don't think my exposure was from that. Right. But, again, like I mentioned on our last episode, I have always loved all things Beauty and the Beast. And so that definitely was, like, right up my alley. I totally remember watching it. Like, when you see Vincent... It's hard not to remember that you've seen Vincent. <laughs> like, yeah. He's a very, yeah, he, like, yeah, stands out. he really does. He's very memorable. <laughs> so, I mean, part of that is just because the prosthetic makeup was so good. It was like, really surprisingly like, good for, like, the era it's from. Yeah. Like, I rewatched a number of episodes on Paramount Plus, which is where it is right now. Yeah. Which also, if you have not signed up for Paramount Plus, sign up. It's worth it. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, like, and even in, like, high def, it works pretty well. Actually, like, a lot of the show works pretty well in high def just because they did a lot of really dark photography. And so I was sitting there and I was like, man, this, I don't know, this probably would have been, like, kind of like a a dark blob a lot of the time on, like, an old 80s TV. Probably. But I was like, but, you know, like, it it looks okay now while I'm watching it on my very nice, like, HD monitor, so. Right, mm. exactly, with my lights behind. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But, yeah. I remember watching it as a kid. I think I watched it a little bit when it was airing with my mom, I think. But I remember seeing reruns in the 90s. And then like when I was in college, I'm pretty sure that it came on sci-fi when I was working on papers and stuff. That makes sense because I thought I remembered seeing it later too. Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of stuff like this is, you know, inexpensive to license after a while. So I wouldn't be surprised. Right. So you and I both watched episodes like for this particular podcast episode. What was your reaction to the show now? So it it made me laugh a lot. Like, mm-hmm. I still really enjoyed watching it. And part of that was how incredibly 80s it was. Such a nod to fashion then with the shoulder pads mm-hmm. on absolutely everyone. Everybody. The blue everyone eyeliner under her eyes. It was like a blue gray. <laughs> such yeah. an 80s color. Like, I mean, it went really well with her eyes, but it was just such a sign of the times. But watching it now, a lot of things don't make sense. Like, I know they live underground, but what is the reasoning for dressing like they're refugees from, like, the Renaissance Fair? Uh, It's never explained. (laughs) Like, I don't hate, like, it's... At least not in any of the episodes that I watched. I'm not mad about it. Like, it's fine. Like, it's it's a choice. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> but but then like on the Halloween episode, like all the kids are wearing Halloween costumes and they're like clearly store bought. You're like, okay. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, I I did like on the Halloween episode how like a jogger like runs past Vincent, like the sun's already come oh up. He like runs past Vincent, he's like, Oh, oh, you scared me. Halloween was last night. <laughs> yeah. That I it's funny because I was watching that episode again. And you know, most of it's like pretty solid. Like you can tell that they filmed the the in quote nighttime scenes during the day with a blue filter over the camera. Right, right. Which I thought was kind of charming because that's like an yeah, old film day technique. for night, absolutely. But like that specific scene where they're sitting there looking at, I think it's the the Brooklyn Bridge or the George Washington Bridge, one or the other. I'm don't don't get mad at me. I don't know New York geography very well. Sorry, Robin Guido. Like it was so obviously green screened. Like it was like painfully green screened. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. I loved it. I loved every minute. Oh, uh, it was good. Yeah, I mean like it's it's very much of the era. It's very silly. It is not subtle at all, but I no. didn't hate it. Like I I found myself kind of charmed by how quaint it felt and there you know there are still like moments of excellence in the writing like especially episodes that George R R Martin wrote. Yeah. Like he did he did the second episode which is all about a vigilante who's basically mimicking Vincent because he's heard about the legends that that are involved with the beast underground and all that. And he has this whole monologue about how basically like he is establishing the legend and then no one will remember that the legends killed the wrong person or something like that, which was really cool, I thought. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, OK, I can I can see how this led to the man who created Game of Thrones. All right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. OK, so. The other thing is this is a very, you know, in quotes, romantic TV show. Like that is one of the the core things about this is it is the central romance plot. And, you know, Catherine feels kind of like a standard 80s romantic heroine. But do you think Vincent is relationship material? Because I have thoughts. Ugh. He's pretty emotionally immature. Yeah. And he's super codependent when he gets into a situationship. They're not even in a relationship. And he's like. Oh, yeah. she's got to get to the airport. I'd better get my car over there. <laughs> like, oh, she needs help moving. Let me get my truck over here. Yeah. It's like, I mean, <laughs> Vincent, like, you, it feels very much like you're being used. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. And, like, I don't think he did this on purpose, but he kind of, like, caused Catherine to, like, trauma bond with him. Oh, 100%. Since he saved her. But he still didn't, like, send her to a hospital where people could find her. He just, like, held her underground to, like, nurse her back to health. Like, she's an injured baby squirrel. But, like... Well, and she's also, like, she's wrapped up so much. Like, basically, it's, like, only her mouth is visible. Well, and they just were, like... You can't see anything else. There's, I mean, and just the way they stitched her up was just monstrous. Like, no wonder she needed such extensive plastic surgery. Like, I'm wondering if she would have needed as much plastic surgery if she had been taken to a goddamn hospital. Yeah, (laughs) I don't know. Probably not. Like, if you had time to get her underground, you had time to drop her off at a hospital, which you have done in other episodes. Like, when she got shot. Yeah. God. (laughs) Also, there's nothing wrong with this, but like he still lives with his dad. Like, so what? Is Vincent moving into Catherine's high rise? Like, is that what's gonna happen? I mean (laughs) (laughs) probably. He 
he shows up at her high res all the time unannounced. Which so, you know, I'm you know. sorry, but there's no way people can't see you there. There's no way that's no, not like, incredibly visible. Like there are windows like of people for miles. That's the like, other thing is is it's like, yeah, he he exists in the world below <laughs> and he exists like under society's nose and all that. He spends a lot of time climbing up the sides of buildings and stuff. And yeah. I'm like, okay. Yeah, I don't know, man. Couldn't you just go in through the basement and take the service elevator? Yeah. hmm. For someone who monologues about not seeing the sunrise very often, you're sure up above ground pretty fucking often, my guy. Yeah. Maybe you're just sleepy in the morning, and that's okay. We don't have to see the sunrise. But don't make an excuse. I I have to live underground. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's one of those things where I'm like, well, like, I can understand how, you know, this resonated with female audiences back in the 80s where gender roles were much more traditional and then suddenly like the idea of a big strong dude who is like sensitive and is in tune with your emotions i can get that like i'm like okay i see the appeal of this i'm like "Mm." i'm like but this is also a very low bar now it's an incredibly low bar and i feel like there are some parts of this where i feel like (sighs) where he would be wearing a trilby if he could yeah, yeah. He is also very mopey, and like one of the early episodes is when she's getting wooed by a guy who turns out to be the villain, and he's like, of "Oh, course. she's Which... falling in love with him. I can feel it, and I should step aside and let her." I'm like, oh. "Which we sniffed from a mile away, though. He was just a villain yeah. from the like, start." Oh yeah, that guy. Yeah, he's like love bombing her with like fancy meals at her office and shit too. It's like that was whatever. so gross. No, this is so like, okay. Oh. We need to talk about this because this guy <laughs> rolls in to the DA's office mm-hmm. with like a this guy rolling a cart because he's not rolling it. No, somebody is rolling it for him. Like there is a whole yeah, like butler, like a butler. Yeah. rolling a champagne cart with like caviar and shit on it, and she was like. We're not doing this now, which I think was a good response. Like, <laughs> I thought it was great. That's a yeah. fucking like embarrassing thing. And like, what a rich person, like with no clue to life thing to do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. Who fucking and does again, that? Going back to my earlier point about like, I actually really enjoyed that a lot of times, like the villains of the episode were the rich and they were going after people who didn't have the resources normally to fight back against them. Right. Exactly. So. No, that was good. I thought that was good. Yeah. Now, the show was, like, well-received, but it wasn't exactly a smash hit. According to the TV ratings guide, Beauty and the Beast was tied for 50th place in 1987's Nielsen ratings chart, but it did get removed. The next year, CBS originally focused on, like, more character development and world building, but then that didn't really work to boost the ratings, so they, like, started bringing more action back in. It doesn't look like it worked since I looked at the ratings for that and it had fallen to 64th place on the charts, but it was renewed for a shortened season. So, but by this time, Hamilton was pregnant and she announced that she was leaving the show. So they killed off her character. That's why. Yeah. 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 So like they, they like kill off her character like at the start of season three. Yeah. And then they replaced her with a criminal profiler named Diana Bennett who tracked down Catherine's killer and helped Vincent, it doesn't really work. The intro is totally different now. Vincent's like talking about how he's searching for a purpose. It's weird. Diana yeah. was played by Joe Anderson, who was fine, but the show feels very at odds with like prior seasons because the central romance theme is just sort of gone. It feels a lot more violent and dark because they don't quite know what they're doing. Like it went from Beauty and the Beast to like 
Beast and his hot platonic friend. Yeah. And you're just like, okay. <laughs> yeah. And then unsurprisingly, the ratings continued to dwindle and Beauty and the Beast wasn't renewed after that. Yeah. But we did get two different comic book tie-ins from this. The first adaptation comes from First Comics, which is an indie comics publisher focused on creator-owned projects. I want to do a deep dive on First at some point in the future, but they attracted a lot of big names. We've talked about a couple of their books on previous episodes of Dollar Bin Discoveries. They did Mars. They did Howard Chaikin's American Flag. And they also did Warp. So it's actually all been comics that you have brought to the table, which is kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. You know, and they put out some pretty great stuff across the 80s. And the Beauty and the Beast comics came about later on when they seemed to be doing more licensed stuff. They were written and illustrated by Wendy Peeney, who is like an absolute legend in comics. And she co-created ElfQuest with her husband, Richard. And Peeney did two Beauty and the Beast graphic novels. The first one is called Portrait of Love. And then the second one is called Night of Beauty. Portrait of Love came out in 1989. It is the one comic that I don't own, but I need to get it now because I found out they released it with like multiple foil variant covers. It speaks to me on a deep emotional level is what I'm saying. Yeah, now I need to find them too because, of course, you've given me the bug. Yeah, I know. I'm not sorry. But, <sighs> you know, the, the good news is these are all very cheap. So because I don't own this, but Jessica does, Jessica is going to summarize it for us. I sure am. And what a summary it is. I'm so sorry. <laughs> My apologies. <laughs> so we start off with our usual intro. This is where the wealthy and powerful rule. It's her world. <laughs> oh my god, the fucking intro. That fucking intro is the cheesiest thing. Like, like again, it gives me whiffs of Highlander, where it's like, you know, describe, oh uh, god, but like, it, really it doesn't does. have the Queen soundtrack, it just feels very cheesy. It really does. Oh my god. But then we cut scene to Catherine physically defending a mother and her two children from their abusive father, who has physically assaulted the mother, and he's now turned the knife on Catherine. There's a struggle. And then as the assailant has Catherine with a knife to her throat, what's that? A window shatters. <laughs> Surprise. And Vincent bursts into the room <laughs> roaring. Duh. And uh, KOs the assailant. Because not only does he look like a lion, he roars like one because fitting. So this allows Catherine to get the mother and children to safety. Vincent runs off, but they meet in the underground tunnels to debrief, apparently, where she thanks him. Back in the safety of his underground home, his father has been, of course, super worried, as he is every time Vincent goes up to the ground level. Vincent is once again having conflicting feelings about Catherine, afraid she's dimming herself every time she visits the underground, mm -hmm. and concerned that he would be taking away normal above-ground human opportunities away from her by keeping her tethered to the city's dark underbelly. Mm. So he goes to visit an old friend, an elderly woman named Elizabeth, who has a mysterious past, and the painting prowess of an old master. Mouse, one of the underground's like kind of children, teenagers, children, teenagers, I don't know. Yeah, they're, they're, they're a regular thing in the show. Yeah. He's been scrounging around getting Elizabeth painting supplies, but being a true artiste, she never uses a canvas as she doesn't like the rigidity of staying within the confines of his edges. <laughs> God. So Elizabeth inspires Vincent to paint a picture of what inspires him. Obviously, that is Catherine. Duh. But she warns him that once he starts painting, he can't stop until he's finished, which 
lady, he can do whatever the fuck he wants. But anyway, Vincent really takes this to heart and starts to do some mock-up drawings before he gets to canvas itself. And he is not happy at all with anything he's doing. He can't make the eyes come to life like hers. Not gonna lie, it's pretty emo. He's surrounded by crumpled up paper at one point. He's dramatically growling as he crumples and throws another sheet of paper. So he goes to read to try to get his inspiration back and is reading something by a member that used to be a part of the community whose name was John Pater. He started going by Paracelsus when he was expelled from the community for a vague reason of following his evil dreams kind of vibe. So then Vincent is like, okay, I have to go paint now and be by myself. Nobody follow me. And he like (laughs) goes and hides in a cave in order to concentrate on painting his love. So while he's there, he's about to start on his work and he's approached by a woman named Narcissa who tells him that this is a holy shrine and that he must have felt its powers draw from there. And she also mentions that Catherine will draw great love as well as great hate. So Yeah, she shows up. She's kind of like a voodoo seer. Yeah. Like, you know, she's a magical black lady. Exactly. It's a trope. It's, uh, the tropes. Tropes gone wild. So cut to Vincent, feverishly painting, and he's there for a concerningly long amount of time, like days. So Mouse goes to find him and locates Vincent due to the bloodhound-like raccoon that is Mouse's pet. And Mouse is legit worried. Like. Vincent looks like he got in a fight with different colors all over his face. Spoiler, it's paint. Mouse brings Jacob, underground daddy, (laughs) to where Vincent is, where they see his marvelous painting of Catherine, which we do not get to see, by the way. So we never see this. We never fucking see this. Yes. I don't know how I feel about that. Like I kind of like it because it leaves it up to the imagination, but at the same time... Nope. mm. Nope. I'm pretty mad. So... (laughs) Meanwhile, Catherine's on her little roof terrace, reflecting about Vincent, and gets the urge to go see him. So she goes under her building and, like, taps a little message for Vincent. He hears it, and he and Jacob go to get her, while Mouse offers to watch the painting and keep creepy crawlies off of it. Well, it was still wet, so they didn't want to move it, apparently. Yeah. So when they leave, however, we see that a gang of ruffians led by a man with a metal partial face mask is plotting against our protagonist. So Catherine is led into the underground by Elizabeth and a couple of the underground children. While we get a cutscene of a mob of men sneaking up on Mouse, and while Catherine is being shown other works of art, we see Mouse being roughed up and pushed to the floor. It's uncovered that Paracelsus has taken it, and Vincent vows to find him and the painting for, you know, vengeance and stuff. Yeah. Also, I should note that in the show, Paracelsus is played by Tony Jay, who is just perfect as a villain. Like, yes. If you want a good, elegant villain, you always hired Tony Jay. Oh, great. So Catherine tries to talk him out of it, but he just like storms off. So we cut to Paracelsus's place, which is a direct recreation of the Phantom's lair from the Phantom of the Opera, which is fitting since he's got that very Phantom partial face mask, but gold. But gold, right? Because he's bougie. So Vincent rolls in and is like, you took my painting. And bro was like, yeah, but it's in a solid gold frame now, like it deserves. And like tension. Okay. Fuck. So Paracelsus is basically like, bro, 
you made this in my space. It's mine. And Vincent's pissed, right? Paracelsus talks about how the world should have been his and how he wants to take over. Like, has nothing to do with his fucking painting, right? And Vincent's right. like, what, bro? No. <laughs> Paracelsus pushes a button to draw back this little walkway that had gone across this little moat because, of course, this is like an island on a lake. He's so extra, he's got a moat. And, of course, this is right when Catherine and Mouse show up. And then there's like fire everywhere where Vincent is for some reason. And Catherine <laughs> jumps the gap and runs into the fire with him. And so Vincent like tucks them both under his cloak because now he has to fucking worry about her too. And it seems like the cloak is like supposed to be fire like resistant in some manner. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. So Mouse is having to like deal with the cronies by himself. Then there's like this fight scene. We get the two out of the fire. Then Paracelsus has a wrist dagger. He's trying to use on Catherine. Kachoo, kachoo. But they subdue him. And they all go look in amazement at the portrait of Catherine, which again, we still don't fucking get to see. And then <laughs> Paracelsus sneaks up and pushes a fucking standing candelabra into the portrait, like setting it aflame. What? And okay. then, yeah, and then he runs out behind a throne chair, which was a little hidden exit way. Very much fucking Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> wow. Okay. And no one chases him because they're all worried about trying to put this fucking picture out. And Vincent's like, what's done is done. And then the picture just like continues to burn. And Catherine consoles him that even though he feels like he could not recreate it, he didn't need to as everyone he loved saw it and knew its beauty and what it represented. And that couldn't be taken away. And Vincent ends it by saying, Catherine, you are my life. Fucking classic <laughs> Vincent. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Like, that was such an ongoing thing where they're like, oh, you're my life. Oh, you're a part of me and I'm a part of you. And I'm like, uh. And even okay. though we can never be together, we'll never be apart. What? Uh, what are you saying? That makes no sense. <laughs> okay. Man, there's a lot more happening in this graphic novel than in the second one. Because, like, the second one, I, like, summed it up in one paragraph. I was going to say, <laughs> I was wondering. I was like, did you get this written at all? You did. It's just only a paragraph. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Um, it's just, uh, it's, yeah. it's much briefer. A lot happened. Like, it was like, they definitely were trying yeah. to play the Phantom of the Opera vibe. Like. <laughs> Which I kind of love. Well, yeah. And Paracelsus was like, you know, he was set up to be like a really major villain. I think at the end of the season two, he like drives Vincent into like violent insanity and other stuff. It's whatever. It's a thing. Yeah. <laughs> I like I don't know. It was very over the top, but also I feel like um maybe maybe if you're living in a flammable underground lair, don't have a bunch of standing candelabras around. I don't know, just me. Well, you know, to be fair, like he stole the painting and put it down there. Yeah, all right. And then all pushed right. the candelabra into the painting out of spite. <laughs> just because well, he's just he's just mean. I mean... <laughs> She's a bully. Yeah. There was a whole thing in, I think it's the second season, where he, like, he tells Vincent two different origins for him, where he's like, well, like, you know, you were actually my son, and then right. you basically killed your mother by tearing your way out of her. Ugh. The other one that he has is he's like, well, actually, like, my wife found you, like, near the hospital of St. Vincent's, and that's what you're named after. We don't know what your origin is. But, like, yeah, he's he's very dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> like, everyone's very dramatic. Yeah. Well, after that, 
they released a second one, which was called Night of Beauty. It was released in 1990, which was during that show's third season. Peeny has an afterword where she talks about how her original pitch for the second book was a, in, this is a quote, beasts and robbers concept that she describes it as pretty lukewarm reception, but then she overhauled it when she found out about Catherine's upcoming death in the show because she was having a conversation with Ron Coslow, the showrunner. Right. Coslow told her after he read the script that if he had the money, he would have taken what she created and turned it into a movie because he loved it so much. Oh. Yeah. So Night of Beauty takes place in the immediate aftermath of season three's opening where Catherine died and then their son was kidnapped. That becomes like a large plot point is that Vincent is trying to to track down his son. Yeah. So it looks like this takes place between like episode three and four, I think. It's a little hard to pin down the exact timing. At first, Vincent is moping his way around the city. First of all, he's like, you know, waxing poetically about how much he misses Kathy. He spies on Kathy's boss, Joe Maxwell, who is also grieving in his own way. He debates actually reaching out to Joe, but he doesn't know if he can trust him. And then he encounters the former junkie, Lucy, who helped Vincent in an early season one episode and saves her from a mugging. She brings him back to her place and he recaps what happened to the love of his life so that we see in a very quick flashback that she had died, but that he can't get over it. Lucy suggests that with Kathy and Vincent's bond and like their souls being so intertwined and him holding onto her so hard, maybe he's preventing her from moving on, which makes him sit up and, you know, think about it. Totally. He goes back to the world below where everyone is grieving Kathy's death in their own ways. He then goes to the seer Narcissa and she shows Vincent how to find his love spirit. He travels to like the far out tunnels of the area and there's a crystal chamber where he ends up performing a ritual that allows him to go out as an astral projection, whereupon he suddenly finds himself at this like fairy tale castle. Catherine is inside of it and she's wearing a full on kind of like fairy tale princess dress. And then Vincent ends up kind of chasing, kind of guiding her through a number of trials to help her move on. And these are all very abstract and metaphorical moments. We see her running away from him. And then when he finds her again, she is like in this beautiful two page spread. She is under siege by almost like undead people who ends up, they are begging her for help and like, you know, trying to get her to like give them different types of aid. And she has to accept that like she couldn't help everyone. But at those people that she did interact with, she touched and left like in a positive way afterwards. There's also a violent confrontation with like what looked like gang members. And then Vincent has to like convince her to give up on her rage. And then finally they wind up at a recreation of the passageway that leads to her apartment building from the world below. And it's like a recreation of that first parting that they have in the pilot episode where he brings her back after, you know, nursing her back to health. And Kathy doesn't want to leave, but then a figure made out of light who, you know, is clearly meant to be like the spirit of their son, I guess takes both of their hands. They say a final farewell. Kathy walks into the light. Vincent tells her to remember him. And she says she always will. He then returns to the real world and finds a white rose on the ground next to him as a sign from Kathy. And then holding the rose, he wanders through the world below. And it's kind of like a little bit more of like a, a bittersweet positive moment. And he climbs a building to look at the Manhattan skyline like he does. And then he hums a lullaby and is sure that his son hears it. End scene. 
Mm. Yeah. And then I don't know if there were more Beauty and the Beast comics planned by first, but the publisher went out of business shortly after the show was canceled. So it's kind of moot at this Mm. point. I do know that Wendy Peeney seemed to be incredibly passionate about the show based on her essay at the back of the second comic. So I wouldn't be surprised if she was hoping to do more. I personally think she definitely captured kind of the moody romance fantasy vibe in each story she told. Yeah. Yeah. So before we move on to the next entry in this episode, how did you feel about the Peeney comic that you read? I thought that it felt true to the vibe of the show. I mean, it fit nicely with the narrative of the overall world. You know, we had familiar characters and some fun little pop culture references. Like that whole Phantom of the Opera Mm -hmm. thing was really funny to me. Yeah. Overall, I liked it for what it was. Although, as always, Vincent is so fucking dramatic. Like, it's just a painting dog. (sighs) Like, of fucking course, he's going to be lured into a trap so easily. Yeah. Yeah, I felt the same way. Like, so I didn't read the first one, but like the second one, it felt much more just kind of moody and less action oriented than you would typically get from a comic book of this era, which I kind of dug. Yeah. And also kind of high concept. Like, I mean... I know that you weren't a big fan of like never seeing the painting, but that's, I think, something that most (laughs) creators wouldn't actually have the stones to pull off. And instead they they went with it, which I kind of dig. So irritated. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to die on that hill. (laughs) I am. I'm just like, Wendy Peeney can never come on our show because you're going to yell at her about this. Yeah, I am. Just kidding. (laughs) Please come on our show. (laughs) Oh, my God. Sarah would die. Sarah is the biggest ElfQuest fan. Oh, like. If I don't know what to get her for like a holiday or a birthday or something, I just go find like random ElfQuest shit. I'm like, okay, I'm good. There you go. Yeah. But like good ElfQuest shit. Like, well, yeah. I found her like one Christmas, I found her the first appearance of ElfQuest and it was signed by Wendy Peeney. And I'm like, well, you know, that Hello. seems like a pretty good one. Yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. I personally feel like these two graphic novels probably could have worked as episodes of the show. Like, do you feel the same way about that? Yeah, I actually do. Like I mentioned, I feel like the one I read fit really nicely with the overall vibe of the show. And they would be really interesting storylines for the show. Even the way that like the cutscenes were framed felt very transferable to a TV show format, especially because these ones Mm. had like hour slots. So they were 45 minutes long. Yeah, they're they're fucking long episodes. Really fucking long. I didn't realize when I first started watching, I was like, oh, I need to put some time aside for this. Yeah, it's almost like advertising has taken up more and more of television programming as we've gotten older. Wow, you don't say. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, like, the final question I have about this is that these comics were painted instead of being traditionally, you know, penciled and inked and colored. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Would you have preferred to see it drawn traditionally? I mean, I liked both ways about it. I did like the whimsy of the painting because i think Mm -hmm. that it captured the soft lens feel of the show really well yeah and that's the thing is like even though like the show itself wasn't photographed that way it feels emotionally like it was filmed with like vaseline over the lens a little bit. (laughs) yes absolutely absolutely so i mean i think the painting really kind of showed that i did also like the other type of art it felt more comic book like it felt like it gives it like gave Mm -hmm. it a little bit more depth i think and yeah. made it slightly different than the show, you know? Yeah, which is what we're going to be talking about in just a second. Yeah. Yeah, like, I agree with you. I think, actually, the painting style that Wendy Peeney used worked really well. Yeah. I I actually, I dug it, you know? She's also an incredible artist. 
Mm-hmm. So anything that she did was going to look good. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So that leads us on to our next part of the story, which is we got another comic adaptation a couple of years later in 1993, courtesy of Innovation Publishing. And for a little background, Innovation Publishing is actually a really interesting publisher. They were founded in 1988 by this guy named David Campiti after he secured funding from some investors. Innovation's bread and butter was they put out adaptations of like existing media properties, including several novels like Anne Rice's Interview with the Vampire, Piers Anthony's On a Pale Horse, and Terry Pratchett's Color of Magic. They also did comics based on TV shows like Quantum Leap, Dark Shadows, Lost in Space. And they also gave movies like Nightmare on Elm Street and Psycho and Child's Play, the comic book treatment. So there were also a number of original titles, too, including a two-issue series called Cyberpunk that happens to be the first comic to receive a digital edition. They put out a bundle that was shrink-wrapped, and it came with floppy disks containing copies of the comic. Like That's so wild. I have a couple of the copies. They are still in their shrink wrap. <laughs> of course you so, do. Oh, it's great. There are a number of books from the publisher that I want to cover in future episodes. Lost in Space actually brought in Bill Mummy, who played Will Robinson in the original TV show to write a storyline that never got finished as the (sighs) series was being published. But then the complete storyline was published later on as a graphic novel. Good. I've got some Lost in Space comics. Yeah, we found a bunch of them at that Outer Plane sale. Mm-hmm. Like I just I just came across all of mine today when I was organizing everything to put in my file cabinets. So fun. But yeah, it sounds like innovation was pretty successful at the time. According to an essay that Campiti wrote, innovation managed to get up to the number four spot on the comics market. They were right behind Marvel, DC, and Dark Horse. And that said, when they took on Beauty and the Beast, the show had already been off the air for three years. And according to that same according to that same essay that Campiti wrote, he didn't know about the show until he started watching it with the woman he was dating at the time. Oh wow! Okay, I first became aware of Beauty and the Beast because my girlfriend at the time watched the show. As I joined her on the couch to watch the episodes, I was impressed with the characters and storytelling and moody photography. Then I realized this would be an ideal comic book series to add to our roster of projects at Innovation, which already included Dark Shadows, Quantum Leap, Lost in Space, and such novel adaptations as Anne Rice's The Vampire Lestat. I was so enamored of the show that I wanted to write the project myself. Yeah. And then Campiti brought in this little-known Brazilian artist named Mike Diodato to paint the comic as opposed to just penciling. And according to League of Comic Geeks, Diodato had only worked on a couple of books for Malibu and Eternity Comics before this. Oh. Like, I think he has like two issues to his name prior to this book. And, okay. you know, he has since gone on to be like a major name in comics. Like he was for a long time one of like the premier artists for Marvel. Wow. But yeah. Yeah. Campiti believed in the comic and Diodato so much that innovation actually... They did a signed collector's edition with Goldfoil that was like an exclusive to the Home Shopping Network. Oh, I have one. I wow. cracked it down. It's wild. Like it's. Of course you do. <laughs> I tracked it down, man. It's pretty hard to find these days. But yeah, according to Campiti, they actually flew Diodato up to West Virginia to sign the books in like the middle of a snowstorm, which I thought was pretty funny. Oh wow. Okay. But this is also where it gets a little weird because the series didn't tell original stories. Instead. It's just doing like straightforward retellings of different episodes. The first three issues are the first episode of the show. Like that's it. Issues four and five are adapting the show's third episode, Siege. 
and issue six handles the fifth episode, which is called masks, which is like the Halloween episode. But we only get about half the story since the comic ends on this ambiguous note. There's no to be continued moment or anything, but it ends like halfway through the episode story. So my guess is yeah. they were planning to wrap it up in issue seven, but that didn't happen. And, and like, these are not just retellings. They are like shot for shot remakes for the most part. Oh, it's, yeah. it's kind of uncanny because Diodato's style and this is almost photorealistic. And a lot of the panels are from the same camera angle. So it's almost like someone just took individual still frames and ran them through a Photoshop filter and then threw them on the page. That's not what happened. Diodato is like an amazing painter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But his art is so good that it almost looks that way. Right. I will note issue five has like this wild cover with fire and Nazis and people running, which isn't something that actually happened in the show. No. Yeah. So the episode that it's adapting is called Siege. It is about a corrupt real estate developer who we've talked about. He was the one who was like love bombing Catherine with, you know, the the elaborate meal in her office. Yeah. He is trying to force tenants out of a rent controlled building in New York. He wants to raise it and gentrify the area, which is very much called out as being a bad practice. Mm -hmm. But the elderly couple who become friends with Vincent and Catherine, they're an elderly Jewish couple. And the husband is taking a nap while the wife is talking to Catherine. And in the show, it's literally just this woman talking about how her husband was vibrant and strong earlier in life before. And all she says is, they broke him. Mm. And then she eventually sits there and shows Catherine her concentration camp tattoo on her forearm. But the comic shows the husband is basically having a nightmare while this dialogue is going on. And we actually see the Nazis and their atrocities. And it's actually really powerful. But the problem is, is that they took this sequence and they put it on the cover and then they slapped Catherine and Vincent in silhouette, like over it. And there's no context for it. Right. <laughs> it's wild. But it turns out there is a reason that they were only telling existing stories. Campiti said he wanted to write original Beauty and the Beast stories like Innovation was doing for other shows like Dark Shadows and Quantum Leap. But apparently Coslo didn't want original stories. He apparently told Campiti that he'd already gotten those from Wendy Peeney and instead he wanted the show immortalized as a painted comic, which is just wild to me because I don't know. That doesn't really seem like a great way to to bring readers in. But, you know, Not really. But what do I know? I, well, the, I mean, the other thing is like, you know, they're choosing existing episodes that are pretty early in the show's tenure. And right. aren't really that great. Like Masks, the Halloween episode is interesting because the whole thing is that Vincent ends up befriending and then defending a Irish peace activist because this is the 80s and the, you know, the IRA, Northern Ireland, all that stuff was going on. And it's it feels very campy, like the Irish accents are so heavy. And then oh, it turns yeah. out she's being targeted by an IRA activist. But then. That's not actually what's going on. It turns out that guy works for her father and he's trying to bring her back because her father is dying. It's not great. Like there were better episodes later on, I feel. And I feel like they could have actually chosen some much stronger stories to tell, but they were just kind of going through the motions at this point. Yeah, I can agree with that. Yeah. So there are only six issues in the innovation series. Which of the stories in those issues do you think was the best one? I liked four and five about the landlord. I mean, I feel like they kind of went together. Yeah. But I had watched that before I read the comic, and boy, did I ever see that twist coming. <laughs> that rich guy. I mean, it, it is not subtle. It's like, not subtle. 
Maybe like, I really could have watched smart, that though. as like a seven or eight year old and been like, mm, I feel like that guy's off. Made me feel really smart. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, I think that the show did the rich guy is bad really well. I also found the storyline to be really thoughtful when it came to the experiences of those who had been victims of the abuses of power and the different ways that we kind of can see that. It was really super sad, though. Oh. Yeah. How do you feel about the fact that innovation didn't do original stories and instead just adapted existing episodes? Well, I'm bummed that the artists and writers didn't get the opportunity to be more creative, but there is something to be said about tapping into an already successful market. It sounds like innovation just had a niche and it was a choice for sure. And it doesn't leave room for a ton of growth or creativity, in my opinion, but it was a choice. No. Yeah. I wish that they had given Diodato a little more creative freedom with it. Yeah. Agreed. But yeah. So as we noted previously, like, you know, both of the Beauty and the Beast comics were painted, yeah. but like they are also painted in very different styles. And how do you feel about that? You know, I didn't mind them. Mm -hmm. I liked both, but I favored the more kind of drawn look of the graphic novels. Yeah. It gave more of a comic book vibe instead of a direct from TV look that we got from the painted style of the innovation series. But again, I mean, I felt like it mm -hmm. represented the series really well in the way that it was painted. So. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so in spite of its success in terms of market distribution, Kimpiti left innovation in 1993. According to his side of the story, he got forced out by his business partners who then subsequently ran the company into the ground, so much so that, according to the February 1994 issue of the Comics Journal, they left a bunch of unpaid debts to, like, creators and printers and investors. And regardless, Beauty and the Beast comic series ended suddenly with six, Campiti said that he had issues seven, eight, and nine written. Diodato had already done the cover for issue seven, but it doesn't sound like we'll ever get to see any of those. And that's where Beauty and the Beast's comic adaptations end. They were never collected or reprinted everywhere. The first comics editions are really easy to get a hold of for next to nothing. It's pretty much the same story with the innovation books, other than the gold and signed editions. Those go for a little bit more, but you know, it's still pretty easy to get a hold of everything for not a lot of money online. And it's worth noting that this franchise feels a bit like Highlander, given that it has an incredibly passionate fan community that sprang up around it. Sarah and I were talking about it the other day, and she was saying that it used to have like a pretty active fanfic community that she thinks is still around. And then the fan community, they named themselves helpers when the show was on the air. It was after the term for people who in the world above who helped the secret society underground. And then it turns out they were still holding fan conventions as recently as 2019. What? Yeah. Like they're in the Midwest, I think. I want to go. Yeah. I'm really curious what they're like. I don't know if after the COVID lockdowns, if the conventions have resumed but who knows? I am. I'm going to hope. I'm going to hope and pray. And then I'm going to start a cosplay. And then I'm going to figure out a cosplay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I like it. Uh, <laughs> prime TikTok fodder. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And then Ron Koslow has continued to find work in Hollywood as an executive producer. He's never really had another show with like the same cultural impact. He co-created the historical fantasy show Roar back in the 90s, which stars a very young Heath Ledger. And he also co-created the 2007 vampire romance show Moonlight. Both of these shows only got half seasons. I know Moonlight wasn't well received when it came out. I think Roar got OK reviews. I remember seeing ads for it, but I didn't watch it. It was aping 
the vibe of Xena Warrior Princess, but it was also a Fox TV show. And Fox in the 90s and aughts was just notorious for killing cool shows without ever giving them like a chance right. and also not really promoting them. Yes. So, yeah. And then that said, we should note that the show was rebooted in 2012 for the CW starring Kristen Crook of Smallville fame. I've read the other lead actor's name like five times and I keep on forgetting it, which says a lot about the show and its overall vibe. <laughs> I don't think Vincent was even a beast most of the time. He would just kind of like manifest the appearance when he got angry. He's like kind of a sexy Bruce Banner, I guess, like hulking out. I <laughs> I remember watching an episode or two of this when it came out and I was like kind of offended at it. It just it felt it felt so insipid. I remember catching a couple episodes of it and being like, damn, Kristen Crook. <laughs> I, okay. She was Kristen in. Crook is like, she was in a couple of, or like a few different kind of fairy tale things. One of which was a Snow White. She played Snow White at one point. Was she? She okay. played a very good Snow White as well. Like she's a solid actress, and I like I'm right there with you. Where I think she is like knockout gorgeous, but you know she just kind of she found her niche. She she did play Chun Li in that truly awful movie that they made back around. 2009 i think oh no where one of the black eyed peas played one of the street fighter villains i can't remember who his name or whatever sounds was, awful i didn't see that it was i sounds like i don't need to no i paid money to see it but i got reimbursed because i wrote a review so whatever <laughs> yikes it was it was not good yeah but i guess people liked the 2012 reboot because that fucking show got four seasons like, oh, although no. admittedly the last two only had 13 episodes, so it was half seasons, but you know, man, whatever. now I'm gonna have to go find it. <laughs> no, why? You don't have to. I, why would you? No, you didn't lose a bet. Like, there's no reason. <laughs> oh, I just want to see if it really truly is that bad. Uh, I mean, it probably yeah, is. I mean, you're pro- probably right. Probably is. But... It's, it's a CW romantic fantasy drama. Of course, it's going to be that bad. Oh, the CW. The C-dub. Man. <laughs> I feel like it is more on the level of that awful Tom Swift show that we watched for oh, our, no. our crossover episode with Deer Watchers. Oh, no. I'm having flashbacks. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> Man, that was bad. It wasn't good. Nope. <laughs> yeah. So that's the 1987 Beauty and the Beast TV show and its comic book adaptations. Do you have any final thoughts before we move on? Oh, this was definitely a different experience watching it now as an adult in this yeah. this year of our Lord Beyonce. But <laughs> it was a fun little jaunt down memory lane. And I'm not mad yeah. about it. It was silly and no. overly dramatic. But it's like a special little 1980s time capsule that I really enjoyed. <laughs> yeah, I'm like right there with you. That's like, like silly is the word that I keep on using, but like also charming absolutely and still so impressed by vincent's prosthetics i really truly am they were really good for their time like amazingly good for their time actually like like they also did like you know the special effects where it's like the matte paintings like showing like you know extending the world also that was pretty cool that was one of my favorite things was just looking at the world below and then you see that like the steam pipe tunnels like have these like bottomless chasms that are all steam pipes and i'm like yeah all right that's pretty cool i like it (laughs) yeah Yeah, it was neat i dig it where they have like the underground waterfalls where you get to go brood and read poetry. It's great. Right. And like somehow there's like all of these like spiral staircases. I mean, yeah. 
I have to say, I like these episodes where we find ourselves more nostalgically charmed than angry. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. This one. It's nice. It was a change of pace for sure. Press. Yeah. Well, how about we move on to brain wrinkles? Let's move. Let's do it. Okay, we are now at the point of Brain Wrinkles, which is that part of the show where we talk about one thing that is comics or comics adjacent that has just been stuck in our noggins for the past few days. So, uh, Jessica, what's wrapped itself around your gray matter? Yeah, we do do that. So, I, (laughs) before I even saw the new Spider-Man movie, the Into the Spider-Verse, I had seen this joke on TikTok and I just thought it was the funniest thing. That, like, one in ten people is (laughs) (laughs) Spider-Man. And I just thought that was, like, hilarious. Because, honestly, like, I I still think it could be true. Honestly. I really like the idea that that kind of delved into, which is that there can be so many different iterations of Spider-Man. He or she or they are not just one person or thing or entity. And it's cool to see folks doing Spider-Man versions at cons and things. Mm-hmm. So it's been such a joy and a pleasure to open up like such a world for so many people to feel connected and a part of. And I, it's so fun to see what everybody is doing with all of their characters. And I mm-hmm. saw one that was dressed as like punk rock, you know, with all Oh yeah. The, spider punk. Yeah. Oh, spider punk was so good. And I mean, this guy did this really cool thing where he had made these really fluffy locks for himself, but then he had put like wire in kind of like a square around the outside of them. So it looked like they had the blue edges to them and it was, <sighs> Oh, it was so cool. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. So yeah. And the other thing is like stuff. They've been doing a lot where they've been introducing different spider people from across the multiverse. And it's like, you know, there are people that have disabilities or are queer, and it's so refreshing. Yes, absolutely. And yeah. different body shapes, you know, yep. different sizes of people. Yeah, it was cool. Hmm. Well, what about you? Uh, <laughs> I, oh, man. So I have been thinking about all the fucking social media platforms that nope. that have come about in the last six months. <sighs> Y'all, I'm like, let's level we, here. Mike is our social media guru. He does our social media uh, stuff. I I so tired. was actively so participating tired. for a long time, and Mike is much better at it. And I was like, I'm gonna step out here <laughs> because I'm not that great at it. Oh man, I was I was really good at Twitter, and it makes me so mad that Elon has just burned it to the ground. God, and uh, what a trash human. Yeah, but this past week we had Threads launch from Meta, which it's like, okay, it's coming from Mark Zuckerberg, but it's, you know, it feels, it feels nice. Like all our friends are on there. It's really easy to set up. You know, it's basically just kind of like leveraging Instagram's profile and follower lists to kind of get yourself set up. So you don't feel like you're starting off quite from ground zero again. That's great. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, it's fun, but it's just like, I, I took a screenshot the other day of all the different social media platforms that I'm using for our podcast. And I was just like, I am so tired. I think I'm going to like prune it back a little bit. Like, cause some of them are just yes. not really worth it. Let's do that. Please. Yeah. Like <laughs> hive, especially that that's dead. You heard it here first folks. We're not on hive anymore. <laughs> yeah, like I think, I think I posted like two or three things there, but like hive had a moment and then it turns out they really stumbled because there was some security issue 
that basically they took the app offline and it just, they never recovered from that. I like Mastodon. Mastodon, like the server that we're on is pretty solid and it's full of a bunch of queer nerds. Nice. But, you know, like our follower account isn't huge or anything there, but every time we post, we get some engagement, which I like. That's good, yeah. TikTok, we're starting to post more on, which is like, is useful. So it's, it's just, it's like, God, there's so many social platforms now. Yeah. And it's a lot of work to keep up on all of them. So mm. <laughs> just uh, that that's kind of where I am mentally. Well, I appreciate your efforts, sir. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it's it's fun. Like I I enjoy it when we get something that goes mildly viral. Like when I found that issue of Force Works and I showed what it looked like when you unfolded the cover. Right. Because it has yeah. the pop out cover. That's terrible. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, social media is definitely something that is necessary for something like this. Like we wouldn't have gotten any of our guests if it hadn't been for Twitter. Oh, that is oh, how yeah. we made. That is how we made friends with comic book keepers and tiered watchers and comic book couples counseling and SJW podcast. It's how we got people like Dan Chichester and Fabian Nicieza and Paul Kupperberg. It's how we first made contact with David Booher, who's going to be coming on the show soon. It makes me sad that Twitter is basically just falling apart and dying a slow, painful death. But I feel like there's a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel now where we have a viable replacement for it. Yeah. That will hopefully if not completely bankrupt Elon, at least really hit him in the wallet. We'd love to see it. We really would. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, who knows? Like, I I have been reading about how basically Elon is fucked with his deal for Twitter because he leveraged so much of his shares for Tesla to get the loan for Twitter, where it's like, apparently, and I mean, like, I need to state that, like, I am not a financial expert. I'm talking from a kind of surface level awareness of all this, but it sounds like he is fucked and I could not be happier because like the dude is enabling Nazis yep, and white supremacy on his yep. platform. And, you know, he, he sat there and was like, cisgender is a slur. And I'm like, it's Ooh. literally a medical term. Like, come on, my guy. So yeah. Anyway, you can always find us on every platform as 10 cent takes all one word. But we will be back next week with another dollop in discovery. After that, we may be talking about Dazzler. I'm not sure. It depends when our interviews with David Booher go. Yes, true story. And, and what the timing for that is. We'll see. But yeah, anyway, we have a lot of fun stuff coming up for you to pipe into your ear holes. And until then, we will see you in the stacks. Thanks for listening to Tencent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier and Mike Thompson, written by Mike Thompson and edited by Jessica Frazier. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who you can find at lookmomdraws.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to TenCentTakes.com or shoot an email to TenCentTakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, or now. The official podcast account is TenCentTakes, all one word. Jessica is Jessica Witha, and Jessica spelled with a K. And Mike is Van Sau, V-A-N-S-A-U. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, Blue Sky, and Hive. A full list of our socials will be listed in the show notes. 
If you'd like to support us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Stay safe out there. And support your local comic shop. The struggle train. (laughs) 